Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. What I want to do is get us back in terms of thinking to maybe a pre-Christian way of thinking. And so I want to start off with a, uh, a little quote here from a fellow by the name of Symmachus. And Symmachus was a, one of the last of the Roman pagans to be in any power in, uh, in Rome at the time. You see that he lived in the 350s, basically. Uh, Symmachus, and he says this, to think highly of one's ancestors is good, to think highly of one's descendants even better. Now, why is Symmachus missing a nose? Any ideas? Christians got him, that's right. They all statues were defaced that the Christians could get their hands on. And a, a broken nose is, he wasn't decapitated, at least, many were, right? And that's why we have so many headless statues around. What I want to talk about today is what's wrong with America? And this is one of the things that's wrong with America, I do believe. And I've been reading a book recently that I would recommend for you. And that is one called American Schism. It, if you look, you probably can't see it, but it says how the two enlightenments hold the secrets to healing our nation. All right? And most of us don't realize that there were two enlightenments, and most of us don't realize that those two enlightenments led to very different ideas. One of the enlightenments led to what we call Republicans here in the U.S., uh, that is, those who believe that government... Uh, should have a very minimal effect, Well, we, how much we should talk about. And the other enlightenment was led to the Democratic Party, basically, that is, let the people decide that which they want. And as you know, uh, the United States is kind of always back and forth about that. We have this electoral college thing. Well, that's one enlightenment invention, to make sure that people don't take over, right? Uh, so a representative government. Okay, so where does this come from? Well, let me talk a little about it. In the Europe that all people from Europe came from, if you happen to have family back there, we had at that in Europe three estates. They were the church, the aristocracy, and the poor. Now, where are the women? That's what they're asking. <laughs> where, where were you? No, you don't, you, no, no power for you. Thank you very much. So you have the aristocracy, you have the lower aristocracy, you have the church, and then you have everybody else. Now, for me, I know very well that my folks, uh, my forebears were in the third estate. That is dirt poor serfs and peasants, right? Maybe you come from somewhere else, but this is the way Europeans lived, and it's the way the idea of society came to the United States. Now, the next slide will show you what people began to think about that. How do you feel about that? Well, you got your king, you got your aristocracy, you got your Roman Catholic Church, 
all writing this fellow with his tongue hanging out at the bottom of the page there, as you see. Now, we don't see pictures like this from the American Revolution. This is the French Revolution. Why? Because the American Revolution was not an economic revolution. It was only getting rid of the colonial overseers. But the rich people stayed rich, the poor people stayed poor. A matter of fact, taxes went up after the war because they had to pay for it. Let's look at the next slide then. This also comes from the French Revolutionary period. And this is the three estates. You got the aristocracy, you got the church, and you got the poor picking up firearms to free themselves. In the background, you see the Bastille being beaten down by the, by the masses. Now, again, you don't see this in the United States, but it does inform the way we live still. Because when this picture was created, we were creating over here the US Constitution. The Second Amendment to the American Constitution says we have the right to keep and bear arms. That's why it means a lot to many of us, right? Because how do we resist? How do we, because we're shut out of the economic system. We're shut out of the political system. What are you going to do? That's about it. That's about it. Now, this idea, it, next time you hear some redneck like me going on about the right to keep and bear arms, Remember this picture, please, because it means a lot to southern rednecks like me. Next one, because our right to keep and bear arms. This is my father. It's probably 36, 37, long in there, 1936, 1937. Uh, my grandparents on my father's side were sharecroppers in deep southern Illinois down by the Ohio River. That's where I'm from. The Ozarks, we call them. Uh, the, guy on the right is my dad. The other guy is my uncle. Both of them long dead. But here they are before the Second World War. Now, I don't know how many of you, now that I can't, hang on. All right. Since I can't walk around. Some of you know, I, who've been in my office, that I keep this in my office. Why would I do that? What, what is it? Horse collar, that's right. My grandfather, uh, grandparents, sharecroppers didn't own too much. As a matter of fact, they owned a wagon usually, a couple of mules, a couple of horses, and that was about it. So the harness, this is about 50% of my, of my grandfather's inheritance because uh, he, he, he died real poor as he was born. Now. How many of you know how to use one of these? Put one of these on a horse, anybody? All right, good farmers, good farmers, yes, yes. Well, I grew up uh, in the tractor era, but we still used horses to some extent, so I, I do know how to do this. But what I want to do is, is think about the skill level that it takes, if you put the picture back up there, of what the skill level it takes to hook up that stuff. All right? Who is in sixth grade? Anybody? 
Oh, they ran down to Owl. Oh, okay. Well, my dad got drafted into the Second World War out of the sixth grade. He was 20, <laughs> but, but, but that's the way sharecroppers lived. Okay, that's the way sharecroppers lived. So my father lived a life in which he theoretically had a sixth grade education. Uh, he could read and write a little bit. Uh, he could do some basic math, but that was really about it. But by golly, he knew how to hook up a horse's collar. Now, I want you to look at this picture real quick, because I, I want to point something out. I didn't know about this picture until my father was long dead, so I couldn't ask anybody. But this was taken by my aunt, we say aunt in the south, aunt up here, right? By my aunt, who had just bought one of these. This is a brownie camera. Oh, oh, yeah, thanks. This is a brownie camera, the first uh, camera that, w that people could carry around, okay? So she bought that, and she took off taking pictures of the family, and that's why we have pictures of the family. And I, for one, am really glad someone besides me figured out how to put this in a phone, because, uh, yeah, I would never have figured that out. Now, I know that this picture is staged. How do I know that? Number one, you don't ride in a wagon when you're shucking corn. And they're shucking corn because they have a, a bang board on, on the side to throw the corn against. All right? Anybody see what else? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. If the horses were moving, my aunt would be in a sorry shape. Yes. If you look at that and... Yep, yep. It's that strap right there. Now, that strap is the hardest thing to put on when you're, when you're putting harness on a horse. And the first thing you do when you rest your horses is loosen it because, you know, the collars are, are hard on the horse. So you loosen that. So if you look, that strap there is untied. And so I can tell that they're probably doing lunch or something of that nature. But that's what my father knew how to do from his education. Now, the next slide... I found this after my father's death in his papers. This is part of his discharge from the uh, army. So if you look at the top right, farmer general, that means he wasn't a wheat farmer or a dairy farmer. <laughs> He's a general farmer, sharecropper in other words, right? Does anyone have this designation? It's weird because why, why are you talking about what he knows how to do? Three... 06.10. Does anyone know? Mixed urban combat. So why, that is, why that's a skill, I have no idea. House to house fighting, in other words. Uh, and so now, nowadays, uh, if you came home with that, the cops would be knocking on your door trying to recruit you. But in 1946, they weren't looking for house to house fighters. That wasn't a, a skill that my father was going to be able to use. So what the military did is they took these poor kids and they tried to figure out something for them to do to send them back home. You had three million twenty-somethings sitting around in Europe waiting to come home and get jobs. That was a little scary for the, for the government. That's why they left them over there for a year. Projectionist motion picture. My father was trained by the US military as a projectionist motion picture. Now in 1946, every town in America had a, a, a cinema, right? In 1955, everyone had a TV, right? So how long was that skill going to last? 
not very long. So he knows how to farm with horses. After World War II, there are very few horses around anymore for farming. He knows how to kill people, and the cops didn't want that in those days. And he knows how to run a motion picture projector. That's all the training my father ever had. When he came back, that's what he had. That's one kind of education. And it's not a good one. Let's go to the next slide. In 1908, John Dewey, who's, as you know, a humanist hero, was reading and writing about Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he said this, if man is sick, is unable, is mean-spirited and odious, it is because there is so much of his nature which is unlawfully withholden from him. That's Emerson. What makes people as they are is we keep stuff away from them. We don't share. Okay? Then Dewey says this, against creed and system, convention and institution, Emerson stands for restoring to the common man that which in the name of religion, of philosophy, of art, and of morality has been embezzled from the common store and appropriated to sectarian and class use. Now, Dewey was not a raving communist. He was just looking at the American social situation. We're, we are withholding so much from the poor. And the key, he says, is education. And that's why we do E-square these days the way we're doing it. We are doing constructivist education that's not teaching them to use a brownie camera because there's not a lot of point unless you just kind of want to. We're teaching them how to think. The next slide is the central book that Dewey talks about this. The conception that growth and progress are just approximations to a final unchanging goal is the last infirmity of the mind in its transition from a static to a dynamic understanding of life. Why did the Christians knock Simica's nose off? Because he saw the world as circular. Seasons. It just went on and on. The Christians saw a linear future. God was going to come back. That's two very different ways of thinking. Okay? Very different ways of thinking. The next slide is, uh, I want to look at here is a one more thing. I just want to underline this. Transition from a static to a dynamic understanding of life. Knowing that rather than knowing how. All right? That's what was withheld from the American poor. Still is. And it's what we can give our youth because we are privileged people. Knowing that rather than knowing how. A static notion of the universe, being able to think in a creative and progressive way. So, Paolo Freire, some of you know, uh, he's one of the centers for the teaching of this new way of thinking that Dewey was working on, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, uh, one of my favorite books to work with. 
Uh, the next slide has one of his great quotes on it. It says, education either functions as an instrument that is used to facilitate the integration of the younger generation into the logic of the present system and bring about conformity, right, to it, or it becomes the practice of freedom, right, the means by which men and women deal critically and creatively with reality and discover how to participate in the transformation of their world. That's the difference. That's the difference. Pedagogy for the oppressed. Dewey said, education, therefore, is a process of living and not a preparation for future living. Education, therefore, is a process of living today, right now, right? Not a preparation for future living. My father was prepared to run motion pictures machines for the rest of his life. Not a very good way to enter the workforce, was it? He knew technique, but he didn't know how to think. That he wasn't given that. The next slide talks about one of our favorites, I, I'm sure, Bell Hooks. Um, her books are all brilliant. You know, and she teaches us how to do this kind of thinking. If you'll go to the next slide. I celebrate teaching that enables transgressions, a movement against and beyond boundaries. It is that movement which makes education the practice of freedom. Yeah? That's what we are attempting to do here. The next slide, education is not an affair of telling and being told, but an active and constructive process. People talk to each other and learn things from each other by doing them. And the next slide, the last quote from him, give the pupils something to do, not something to learn. And the doing is of such a nature as to demand thinking, right? Make sure it demands thinking learning naturally results. So Franklin, if I, if I invited you to figure out how to put this camera into this one, I think you could read up on it and kind of figure it out, right? Because, you know, even though it's just a black box, <laughs> and that you put film in there, right? So you could figure that out. Probably, you know, we. This doesn't need to be remanufactured. Re but the way the optics work, you could figure out how to do that. That is giving the pupil something to think about and then able to do it. And that's what we're doing with these square. And the last slide I want to think about here is a book that just came out from MIT Press, Out of the Cave, A Natural Philosophy of Mind and Knowing. In that, they say this, and I think it's very, very important. All of the affective and cognitive operations we perform, from simple perception to our most impressive intellectual and artistic achievements, are affairs of the embodied mind. Now, Dewey was saying that in 1903. We're not brains in a vat, right? We're not brains free-floating. We all have bodies, and actually, in fact, we are embodied at all times. What we think and how we think depends on our brains and bodies as they operate in our physical, social, and cultural environments. 
My father would, never had a chance, really, right? Many of you have parents or grandparents who lived in that simple way. One-room schoolhouses are still, oh, it's so nostalgic. Well, when they saw hillbillies walking in, they flunked them, right? My dad didn't learn anything, essentially. That is the key to education, is how to think and the ability of how to think. And that's what we do here with our, our education, lifelong education. And that's why I think it's important because I've seen the suffering of people who didn't get it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org. Thank you.